Well, good morning, friends. If we haven't met, my name is Josh. I'm a church planning resident here, and it really is an honor, a privilege to be able to be together this morning. I've got a question for you, though. Do you love free stuff? Anybody here, you're a sucker for free stuff? I, I, I totally am. In fact, I'll sometimes put out more effort to get free stuff than the free stuff is actually worth because I love free stuff. So you can imagine my excitement when I found out that 10 minutes from my house in Austin, a Chick-fil-A was coming to town and that one of the things they do is they give the first 100 customers free Chick-fil-A for a year. Come on, I know it's dangerous to talk about Chick-fil-A on a Sunday, all right, but, but stay with me. And so I got excited, and this is uh, the year 2019, middle of the year. So my buddy Michael and I, we come up with this plan that he, he and I and, and his wife Jana, we're going to go and we're going to camp out and we're going to get not just one, not just two, but we're going to get three of these meals. And Christy was going to watch all the kids. We hadn't informed her about that plan, but we, it, was, it made sense in our mind. And so we were excited about it, and then COVID happens. And they shut the whole thing down, not, not the Chick-fil-A, but the plan, because they didn't want people gathering together. And so all of a sudden, we go from free Chick-fil-A for a year to nothing. And so May 2020 rolls around, and it's getting ready to open. And I had this thought, because I, I know a little bit about Chick-fil-A. I'm like, you know what? Chick-fil-A is very devoted to the community. They, they're known for loving the guest, the customer, for, for being pro-community. I bet they're going to do something. So I hopped in my car that morning, and they were getting ready to open. I think it was at 7, and I pulled in the drive-thru line at like 6.53, and there were some other hopeful people there. I think I was, I was customer number 8. So I order my meal. I step up to the, the uh, window. I pay, and I see this lady in the distance, and she's handing something out. I'm starting to get a little more excited about this. And, I, and, I, and I, the next car goes, the next car goes, and I pull up, and she says, Sir, here you go. I have something, uh, a small little gift for you. And I look down in this clear plastic bag. And I kid you not, outside of my wife on our wedding day and the birth of my three kids, the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. Free Chick-fil-A for a year. It was incredible. And, and I ended up getting and using it as you would expect. Every week you get the one meal and, and I loved it. It was this great experience. But as I think about that, here's what I realized. That what you are devoted to matters. In fact, what you're devoted to oftentimes defines you. And Chick-fil-A as a company being devoted to the customer, to the guest, guess what they got? A raving fan who will spend far more than $300 that I got in free meals for a year over the course of my life. Who <laughs> will spend th more than that between now and then probably, if I'm honest about it, right? But what we're devoted to, it matters. In fact, our, our devotion is kind of like a thermometer that reveals the, the temperature of who we are. It's telling it's, it's defining. It's, it's what we become known for. And it, what we're going to look at today is the early church, as it was getting started, there were four things that they were devoted to that shaped and impacted their culture and their influence. But here's the thing. It wasn't always that way. You see, if you look at, at what happened, Jesus had this ragtag bunch of 12 men. We know them as the apostles or the disciples. And they followed him around, and they saw him do miracles. They saw family members be healed. They saw the dead raised. They, they saw many bellies and stomachs that were filled. And they saw all these incredible things. And then they watched as Jesus would go to the cross. And all of a sudden, so many of their hopes and their dreams and their realities, it seemed like they came crashing down. And there's this devastation, and there's this fear that overtakes them. 
And they're not sure what to do with the situation. And so they move into this moment of their main devotion is self-preservation. They were devoted to this Jesus, but now their, their, their world is rocked and it's turned upside down. And so in John chapter, John chapter 20 is where I want to read right now. This is what's going on in, in that situation. It's now 10 apostles are in the room. Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, he's gone. And we're not sure where Thomas was, but we know from reading later that he wasn't there as well. So there's 10 apostles in the room. And we pick up verse 19. It says, so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the weekend, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of Jews or self-preservation, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. You can imagine their emotions, right? And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So all of a sudden, their fears, their, their nerves, their anxiety, their devastation, it disappears because they are standing face to face with the resurrected Jesus. And this was something that they, they could have known all along because when Jesus walked on the face of the earth, he predicted he was going to die, which, guess what? We can do that with 100% accuracy. But he predicted then he was going to come back to life. And then he pulled it off, proving he was God. And what happened in that moment was him pulling that off, revealing that he was God to them. It moved them from this place of devotion to self-preservation to devotion to the Lord God Almighty. And what happened was the, the church exploded as they began to step into what Jesus called them to do as he sent them out. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to read the last 16 words of the passage first. Because you're going to see the, the result of their devotion. And then we're going to kind of unpack it together and look at what it was that they were actually devoted to. So Acts chapter 2, verse 47 is where we're going to be. And so just so you know what, what's taking place is that Peter has just preached his first public sermon. And verse 41 tells us that 3,000 people have given their life to Jesus. And they, they repented and they were excited about following Jesus. And so now you have the birth of the church. But the movement continues. Verse 47, it tells us, And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is about 50 days after the resurrection. God's adding to their number daily those who are being saved. And what, what does that mean? It means they're no longer huddling in fear. Now they're all about a mighty work. And these men would become defined by what they were devoted to. Millions upon millions, hundreds of millions, billions of people would become the recipient of the work of the devotion of these men. It's why we're here today, God's Spirit working in and through them. And that's what's taking place. And so when we pick up in Acts chapter 2, that's what we see. So verse 42 is where I want to read. You saw the result, but how did they get there? It says this, they were continually devoting themselves. Let's pause right there for a second. Continually devoting themselves. If you were here last week, Pastor Aaron talked to us about this, this idea of devotion. And specifically last week, we looked at the, the, the concept of being devoted to prayer. And if you weren't here, you should go back and, and check out the message because it will impact you in a significant way. But these men, they were continually devoting themselves. 
Another way of saying is that is that they were giving themselves over or they were directing to a cause. For those of us that were married, when we got married that day, we changed our devotion from ourself and we gave it over to our spouse. That's the idea of this devotion. Now, we live in a culture where most people would say, sociologists would say that we live in a culture that has commitment issues or we live in a non-devoted culture. And at face value, it sounds like that would be true. However, I think it might just be that it's misplaced. For example, the guy that can't hold down a job because he stays up till 3 a.m. playing Xbox. It's not that he's not devoted. He's just not devoted to his job, right? The parents who are disengaged from their kids because they are so committed to their job or to their phone or to the screen in front of them, it's not that they're not devoted, they're just more devoted to technology or to their job than they are to their families. And so the bigger issue is this misplaced devotion, but we're good at being devoted to things. That, that comes easy for us, but it's just placing our priorities in the right place. And so as we think about that and this devotion, what should the church be devoted to? What should the church be known for? What should the church be all in on its commitment? If you're not a church person, I would imagine you have some preconceived thoughts of what you had seen to be true of your experience. And, and a lot of it might be true. All of it might be true. It might not be true. I think about, as I think about the church and what the church is known for, I think about pastors who have preached sermons that have impacted me. I think about worship that has met me in moments where I've been struggling or in, in moments of celebration. I think about how my family has been ministered to by programs. I think about small groups that I've been a part of. And those are all good things. But what is the ultimate thing that the church should be and could be known for and what the disciples were devoted to? As we continue reading here in a second, I want to just invite you to do a self-evaluation. Because it's very easy as we read this to look back and say, not our church. Or, yeah, our church has got that figured out. But whether our church does it or our church does not do it, this is about individual assessments. This is about evaluating it personally because the church isn't a building. The church is a collective gathering that's on mission together. It's a called out assembly, a group of people, a movement on mission. So I want you to assess this personally. How are you doing at living this out? And if you're not a Jesus follower, I would encourage you, if you're here just kicking the tires a little bit, just listen in because this is what should be true of the church. And this is what you should be seeing and experiencing when you come and when you gather together with other Jesus followers. So I want to ask us this question, then we'll, we'll, we'll dive in even more. Is what I'm devoted to today, what I want to be defined by tomorrow? Because we're all devoted to something. But is it what we want to be known for tomorrow and the next day? Is it the story that we want to be able to tell down the road? Picking up in Acts chapter 2. It says this, They were continually devoting to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and their possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, Continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, 
praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord Jesus was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, if we're walking as a disciple of Jesus, these four things are going to be present in our life. If we are committed, if we're all in on following Jesus, we are going to see life patterns of these things that are going to be evident and that are going to be displayed. And so I want to walk us through these individually. And what you're going to see is that all four are listed in verse 42. And then the rest of the passage is explaining them and giving us more depth and more contact for them. So the first thing that they were devoted to, it says, is they were devoting, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so what does that mean? Well, first of all, you see that there's this, this pattern, this life pattern. It was this continual devotion. It was an ongoing presence, a saturation to the word of God, a regular pattern to the apostles' teaching. It was this daily desire that they had. It wasn't just a one and done kind of thing on a weekend or checking in here every now and then, but they were constantly consuming, bathing themselves in the word of God. It was a pattern of their life. But not just that, but it continues in verse 46. It says this, day by day, continuing with one mind. That word one mind, that means that they were unified around the apostles' teaching. And they were doing it in the temple. So they're doing it continually, day by day. And they're in the temple. So, so much of this passage has to do with what's happening in homes. But there's also a very public component of what's taking place. So they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching in their homes, but they were coming together in the temple as well. As they're coming together in the temple, first it would be Jews that would come. And then as the Jews are converted, then we start beginning to see that, that non-Jews are being converted as well. And so there's this priority in their life of gathering together for and to receive the apostles' teaching. And this would have been powerful, powerful teaching. Because the apostles would have been teaching not just something that they heard, but something that they saw something that they were an eyewitness to, something that had radically changed their life. So they're not speaking secondhand. And so they would have been modeling their teaching after Jesus. They wouldn't have had the completed word of God yet, but they would have had the teachings of Jesus. They would have had the Old Testament. And they would have talked about what it looks like to live out their faith in the context of a persecuted world. And so they're hearing this teaching. And what happens is it leads to this extreme movement that simply breaks out. And, and it leads to this extreme change, so much so that historians would tell us that the Roman Empire begins to shift to become more Christian. We'll talk about this more in a little bit. The barbarians are driven out. The Egyptian gods are kind of pushed aside. And there's this Jesus revolution as people are following the way of God. And all of these things are happening, and all of these things are taking place. And it's this incredible moment. But can I tell you something? That what they were devoted to wasn't simply an intellectual experience. It wasn't simply filling their head with knowledge for the sake of getting smarter. It wasn't just, we got to go deep for the sake of going deep. Or we got to consume meat so that we can become smarter. But it was, their devotion was they were receiving something in their head and they were walking it out with their hands and their feet because their heart was being changed. They were devoted to obedience. They were devoted and they were measuring their debt by how well they were following the teachings and the commands of Jesus. In fact, Jesus actually said just a little before he left, before he, he sent them out, he said this, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me 
will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. You see, the mark of depth isn't content. It's not knowledge. It's obedience. And that's what they were committed to, because it was only obedience that could fuel this movement. And we get this. We know this, right? In our culture, we want people that put into practice what they know. Like one of, one of the, my favorite things to do when I sit down to get my hair cut is to ask the person cutting my hair, how long have you cut hair for? And imagine, uh, imagine my surprise if I said, if I asked them that question, they said, today's my first day. And I'm like, oh, okay, so you just came out of school for it. They're like, no, like today you're the first human head. Actually, I've never even cut on dolls. You're the first head I've ever cut. I'm like, what? They're like, but don't worry about it. I spent the weekend watching tutorials on cutting hair. So I got this. Like, what? Or you fly into a new city, right? And, and, and the Uber driver pulls up and you say, oh, man, it's so good to meet you. How long have you been driving? Today's my first day. You're like, oh, you're new with Uber. No, I'm new to driving. But don't worry. I watched all the Fast and Furious movies and I read Jeff Gordon's biography. That's not going to cut it. That's not going to give us a lot of confidence. Because knowledge minus action equals intellectualism. It, it does. And intellectualism doesn't change the world. And action minus knowledge equals legalism. Because if we're not doing it for the right reason, we're not changing the world either, and, and we're only becoming more proud in either of those situations. But knowledge plus action equals devotion, which leads to transformation. And that's what they were doing here in the early church as they're saturating themselves with the word of God. And church, that's what we have an opportunity to commit ourselves to. Parents, that's what you get to do with your kids. Not just when you drop them off at church, but each and every moment throughout the week as you're infusing God's word in their life. And adults, that's what we get to do as we jump into groups, as we're a part of being discipled. We should always be asking the question, how can I obey this this week? Because otherwise it becomes just knowledge or becomes action without the right reasons. And so they were devoted continually to the teaching of the apostles. The second thing, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to fellowship. There's a devotion to fellowship. Now, I got to just tell you, I grew up in the church, and so for me, the word fellowship had to do with a, a few different things that, that did not unpack the full meaning. I would think of a hall that I would go to, and there would be this massive spread in the form of a potluck, and as a kid growing up who didn't grow up with a lot of money, this was like endless amounts of food. And my mom wasn't paying attention to what I was eating, so it was endless amounts of pie, okay? And that was for me, that was fellowship. And for some of us, that's what we think about, or we think about an activity. Or we even think about a class, or we think about a group. But the word fellowship, in its original language, can I tell you something? We don't have the best English translation for it, because it was much more than fellowship. It actually is dealing with, a closer word would be intimacy or togetherness or this idea of vulnerability or authenticity. It's coming together and being known and fully knowing someone. It's coming together and someone sees your faults and they love you in spite of it. It's coming together and people love you the way that you are, but they love you too much to allow you to stay in that place, so they're going to challenge you. Like, that's what's happening here in this togetherness in the early church. They're giving someone a share in something, and so they're giving themselves to each other. Verse 44, it says this, And all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. So they weren't in isolation. 
They, were, they weren't in isolation. That They weren't just kind of pulling back. And, and this is hard for us because we live in a culture that encourages isolation. We're coming out of a global pandemic that almost required it in some ways. But they were together. They made it a priority to be together. It wasn't good enough for them just to listen to a podcast or two and call that their worship experience. But they were together. And here's why they had to. Because most of them had been excommunicated from their, their, initially from their former way of religion or from their families. And so their church community was all that they had. They were desperate. They needed each other, and so they were going to lean heavily on each other. And as a result of that, they could be known. They could care for people. And it's happening. They're, they're having large gatherings. They're having small gatherings, but they're together, calling out each other's blind spots, walking together, challenging each other, being challenged ministering to each other in their time of greatest need, but also allowing others to minister to them in their time of need. And it's happening. This is why church God has given us spiritual gifts. He's given us them not so we can feel good about ourselves, not just so that we can find purpose, but for the good of others. And that's what we have an opportunity to do, to step into that. And so that's what they're doing here is they're together. And it says they had all things in common. And I love that because here's the thing. They're broken people, just like me and you. But this idea of having all things in common, they're focusing more on what they have together, what their similarities are than their differences. They're focusing more on who they are in Christ than what they're not. And they're keeping the main thing the main thing. And they're celebrating those things. And they're unified around all of that. And can I tell you, the church has been doing this for years, and I love it when our culture figures this out and catches up. I love it when sociologists take notice. I want to show you something. This, this is pretty cool. But they did some pretty significant studies of the impact on gathering together for regular worship. And look at what happens here. There's a reduce in the risk of death. These, aren't, these are not small numbers. Reduce in the risk of suicide. Reduce in despair for men, women. All of those things are happening. Why? Because people are together. They're receiving the teaching of God's word and they're encouraging each other and they're challenging each other. It's an incredible thing to think about. And we do it and we're blessed. And the church is impacted and our community is strengthened. But it doesn't stop there, their togetherness. All of, all of you are with me right now. I'm gonna get to the second part and you're like, whoa, back up. Now you're stepping on my toes. I'll show you what I mean. It says this. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Some of you are real nervous right now. You're like, is this socialism? Is this communism? So depending on your political affiliation, some of you are really excited and some of you are like, whoa, back up, preacher, right? But, but here's what's really happening, okay? Or, or let me tell you what's not happening first, okay? They are not liquidating everything that they own and all moving into like a compound together, okay? Because we, we know that because there, there's the absence of the word all when it ter in terms of possessions. The other thing is that this is voluntary. People are doing it as they're willing. We know that because there was a, there's a couple, a few passages, a few chapters later in Acts, and they're struck dead, and it's not because that they held something back. It's because they lied about what they held back. Right? So this is voluntary, it, it, the absence of all. But here's, here's what's happening. 
as anyone might have need. They're, they're flexing to, to meet the needs of these people. They're liquidating some of their things, and they're living by faith to help and support others. They still have houses because they're going to house to house. But what they're saying is, it is wrong for us to live in excess when my brother or my sister is living in need. It is wrong for me to be running around with much more than I need when someone else is struggling. Why? Because they're unified. They're together. When one person suffers, we all suffer. When one person rejoices, we all rejoice. And Jesus knew this because this is, he said, this is how all men will know that you're my disciples and your love for each other. And so for them, the church experience wasn't about what I can get, but it was about what I can give. It wasn't simply about being a consumer, but it was about being a contributor to give back. And so they're, they're, they're willing to do that. Because why? Because it's wrong to live in prosperity when my brother is living in need. Luke is the author, many believe, of the book of Acts. And it's interesting that he would draw attention to this because he, more than any other writer of, of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, spent time talking about the correlation between a person's money and between their, their hearts. Luke was the only gospel writer who talked about the story of the Good Samaritan. He was the only gospel writer who, who told the parable of the, the banquet that was thrown and the people that didn't end up coming to it because they had too much work to do. He's the only gospel writer who told the story of the rich man and Lazarus because I believe Luke understood that radical generosity was the antidote to the suicide of materialism. And he understood that. And so he wanted his audience to realize that, to embrace that. Can I tell you, this is, this is really personal for my family and I. Because we have been the recipients of people investing in us, coming as church planners, investing in us, giving significant amounts of money. But even more recently, people that we barely know investing in us. You see, on Wednesday night, I, I laid my head on my pillow. I went to sleep, and I was... Awoken by a loud thump. I, I looked beside me and Christy was gone. And I went into the bathroom and, and Christy was laying on the floor, passed out. I turned the light on. She woke up and you see what had happened was on, on, on Wednesday, we found out that she'd had a miscarriage. She lost a lot of blood and she ended up very weak from that. And so she got up to go to the bathroom. She passed out. So we, we didn't know what was going on. So we called 911 and the ambulance showed up and we went to the emergency room and they checked her out and, and, and they said she's going to be okay. But as we came home, obviously feeling the weight of the news, feeling the sickness, what happened was this amazing thing. This church that, that we've only been a part of for a few months, this small group that we've only met together with twice, and more people just began to rally around us. People bring us meals, people bringing us gifts, so much so that we're like, we're good on meals. Like, we're, we're fine at this point. And here's what I love about this. Here, here's what I love. The people that served us, served us not because I've contributed anything to them, because I haven't given anything. I've just come and I've received and I've taken in the culture. But they contributed to us and they gave to us because Jesus gave to them. They contributed because of the sacrifice that Jesus had made for them. They could make a sacrifice for us. Many of you are in this room and we're recipients of that. And so it's very personal for my family. Because we've experienced the togetherness. 
not just financially, but just in the intimacy, in the vulnerability, in the encouraging, in, in the crying together, in, in the encouraging, and all of those things are happening. And that can only happen within the family of God. But their devotion, it, it continues. It continues that where their unity is going to be evident again. In verse 42, it says, they were continually devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. What's the breaking of bread? It's, it's a reference to, I believe, the Lord's Supper or communion. If you're new to church, communion is a time where, where the, the people of God come together following the example set by Jesus, where they break bread and they remember the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus prayed paid for them. And they pray together. And what they do is, is they break bread and they, they confess their sins and they reflect and they come back. And it's this idea of reminding themselves that they are in the presence of God, reminding themselves of their devotion to God. And so that's the significance about the breaking of bread is it's this idea of I'm giving up my agenda for his. And Jesus had actually promised that he would be present in those moments where they broke bread together. In fact, Paul would tell us a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians 10 that you're participating in the presence of Christ when this devotion would take place. And the evidence of it, we're told, in verse 46 is that they had glad and sincere hearts. In other words, they were so moved and they were so motivated by the presence of God that they couldn't help but worship. And friends, if our worship is lifeless, it's because our view of God is limited. If our worship is, is lifeless, it's because we're viewing something other than God. Maybe we're viewing our preferences or our priorities. And we're lacking the devotion. We're lacking the focus. We're lacking the anticipation that God wants us to experience and to have and, and to demonstrate and to live out. I was convicted about this this week. And, and, and even a week or two before, as I was thinking about this idea of devotion. And the idea that we, none of us struggle with being devoted, but we all struggle with what we're devoted to. I couldn't help but think about my love for March Madness and college basketball. And tis the season for that, right? And I was reflecting back over, over the last couple weeks and the anticipation that I've had getting ready for my team to play, okay? I'm not going to tell you who my team is because this is about unity, but they play today at 5.05, okay? If you can figure it out. And I've been a fan my whole life. I'm not just jumping on the bandwagon this year, right? But here's the thing. I think about how I've arranged my schedule around watching my team play. I think about how my kids will come in and they will ask me 47 questions before the first commercial. And I'll be like, are you kidding me right now? And I'll think about Christy putting all three of our kids to bed, reading the Bible, praying with them while I'm cheering on my team. And then I think about how mad or how glad I am, all because of a stupid team. And I'm like, man. My devotion is all jacked up. Now, you, we, should be de we could be devoted to our teams, but man, compared to our devotion and our anticipation for as we walk into the presence of God, it shouldn't even compare. And so guess what I did this week? I confessed that to God because I had my priorities really messed up. And part of why I'm preaching it is because my wife's in the room, so today at 5.05, she can remind me of this when I forget again because that's how I am. But church, what if we were so devoted to Jesus that it impacted us, not just here on Sundays, not just throughout the week, not just when we're spending time with God, but every moment of our life. 
And that's the idea here that we see in this idea of their total devotion to breaking bread. It's, it's a picture of them wanting to be devoted to the presence of God and that driving their life and that driving their worship. And finally, they were devoted to prayer. We see in Acts 2.42, continually devoting themselves to prayer. And for them, here's what I read as I, as I read that. It wasn't just an afterthought, but it was happening all the time. It was all the time it was driving them. If we were to continue in the book of Acts, we would see that if they had a need, they would pray. When they were confused, they would pray. When they were persecuted, they would pray. When they were celebrating, they would pray. When they would need God to open a door, they would pray. Because they were desperate, and desperate people are people of prayer. And they're living in a state of total dependence. In fact, right before where we read in Acts 2, where we picked up today, they had spent nine days doing nothing but praying and waiting for God to come in the form of the Holy Spirit. And when God does, this amazing movement breaks out. But they had prayed for nine days, which was symbolizing their, their dependence on God. They were unified around prayer. And we lose touch with how desperate we are when we're prayerless. We lose touch with how much we need God when we're not regularly coming before him, telling him how broken we are, how much we need him. And this early church would have done that because they were desperate. And so how do we get to a place of desperate when we're not in a place of physical need? We're not even in a place of want. It's a challenge for us to get to that place. But we've got to be unified around that prayer and dependence on God. Now, two things come from, from the church's devotion to the apostles' teaching, the church's devotion to fellowship, the church's devotion to the breaking of bread, the church's devotion to prayer. One of them is, is, is very inwardly focused, but it's going to drive their influence. It's going to drive their reach. It's going to drive their impact. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 43, as they've, after they've been devoted to these things, it says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Now, this started in Acts chapter 2 with many different languages that are being spoken. And, and 3,000 people will accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And they're hearing the gospel in their native tongue. And there's this idea of speaking in tongues. And it would continue to sing these supernatural works, answers to prayer. And it would continue where they would just be moved and challenged and encouraged to where it moves them to this place of mission. It drives them to the place of living to others as their core is strengthened, as they're watching with awe and amazement of signs and wonders that are happening as prayers are answered. They're seeing all of those things take place. But it continues. The impact, the reach of, of their devotion. Back where I started in verse 47, it says this. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. In other words, because they were so devoted, they were unified. And because they were unified, the watching world took notice. You see, they were like a thermostat that was influencing culture around them. But it came because they were so unified. And the thing about their unity that's amazing is this. 
In John 17, it would have probably just been a, a couple months before this, maybe 50, 60 days before this, Jesus had this, this final prayer as he's praying with his, his, to his heavenly father. And his prayer, a part of it is, God, I pray that my disciples, those now and those to come, I pray that they would be so unified that the watching world would take notice. And can I tell you, the world did take notice. And the unity, it showed up through their devotion. So much so that, that what happens is, is pretty incredible. I've got some maps I want to show you here. Three different maps, 10 years after Jesus left earth, 10, 12 years after Jesus left earth. You can see, look, look at the little neon area. It, it's not huge. It's hard to see here. But in, in Rome and then Jerusalem, there's kind of a couple pockets of, of Christianity, a little bit in Antioch. But then 20 years, we fast forward. Look, look at the reach of the church beginning to spread. Pretty significant. But then let's fast forward a, a few hundred years later. The reach of Christianity as people began to can just continue to one another each other begin to love each other so well that what was happening internally was driving them externally. And it was this force that could not be stopped. And you may not know it, but Christianity is the only major religion that hasn't had one epicenter that stayed in the same geographical location for all time. You see, it started in the Middle East, and then it spread to Africa and Europe, and then it spread to Latin America, then to North America, and for a while, the hub of Christianity was in North America. And now it's actually kind of spread back to, to Africa and to Asia. But why is that the case? Because it's a movement. It's a movement that's centered around a man who sent people out to live on mission. And Christians didn't just sit around and say, man, we're going to be nice people because it's the right thing to do. We're going to become humanitarians and we're going to feed the poor we're going to clothe those without clothing. We're going to make sure that women have rights and that children have rights. They followed their founder. They followed their founder and they followed his example. And it unified them. It strengthened their core. And it sent them out on mission. And it's the church's devotion to these four things that demonstrate the power of God to the watching world. As the band comes forward, I was reminded this week of a, a really old TV program. That's why I called it a program. Nobody calls it programs anymore. But an old TV program called The Invisible Man. And The Invisible Man would be revealed, whether you know this or not, by paint. They would dump paint and his, his outline would begin to become exposed. And he'd go from invisible to visible. And as I thought about that, I began to realize that, that we, the church, are the paint that makes the invisible Christ visible to the world. As we walk through our life, we have tremendous opportunities to put Jesus on display in the places we live, work, play, and learn. And this morning, each one of us has a next step that we can do that. Each one of us can, can see what God has for us if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to just tell you for a moment, God was so devoted to you that he came to earth and he put skin on. He entered. He became flesh. Romans says it this way, but God demonstrated his love or God demonstrated his devotion towards us that while we were still sinners, 
In other words, we couldn't bring anything to the table because we're broken people. While we were trapped in our sin, Christ died for us. If you've never received and accepted the forgiveness of Jesus for your sins, replacing his, his righteousness, replacing yours, if you've never surrendered your life to him, today can be that day where you can begin to walk out that devotion in a community of others. But at first, it's receiving his gift that came from his devotion to you. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we all have a next step we can take. Perhaps it's surrounding and embracing ourselves and saturating ourselves with the apostles' teaching, which we now have the full word of God. Maybe it's getting into a place of fellowship where we are going to truly be vulnerable. We're going to be real. We're going to be caring. Maybe it's the idea of, of, of the reverence of, of breaking bread, of, of communion, of fellowship with God, of, of being sincere in our worship. Maybe it's just having a posture of prayer, which symbolizes our dependence and our devotion on God. Church, imagine what it would look like with each one of us walking this out in our lives, in our community. Our communities would be some, become so contagious that people would be saying, how can I be a part of that? I want that. I want that. Even before they understand, even before they believe what we believe, they're so drawn in by the fact that we are loving each other so well that they, they belong, right? And then as they belong, they begin to say, wow, now I see why these people are this way. Because of what they believe, I want that. That's what we have an opportunity to do as we live on mission together and then as we go. We're gonna sing a song here. And as we do that, I invite you to just bow your heads and to just reflect. Today's the day you need to give your life to Jesus. We invite you to do that. If there's something else you need to give to him, man, make today the day where you give that over to him. We'd love to hear you. If you wanna respond, we'd love to, resp we'd love to talk with you, pray with you. Or talk or pray with the person that you came with this morning. But don't leave here without doing business with God.